You are listening to the 3CR podcast of In Psychedelia. In Psychedelia is broadcast live every Sunday from 2pm. For more information, head to 3cr.org.au. afternoon and welcome to another episode of In Psychedelia on a rather warm Sunday afternoon. I uh, hope that you're, I don't know, in front of a fan, in front of an air conditioner, maybe down by a pool or sip it on something a little bit chilly this afternoon because I do have quite the show uh, for you. Actually, uh, I've got... I've got a few things to talk about because there's actually quite a few shows coming up. Um, We've collected a lot of audio at the recent Rainbow Serpent Festival that you might have spotted uh, being talked about just a little bit in the media. In fact, um, 35 articles I found over over a one-week period, and I probably haven't found them all, um, across the mainstream press talking about Rainbow Serpent Festival. Uh, And I think about... I'll do the analysis. I'll have the breakdown for you. But it's about 90% of them... uh, were a negative tone with people like our police commissioner, Victorian police commissioner Graham Ashton, uh, uh, essentially calling for a culture war against uh, the culture of that festival, of the Rainbow Serpent Festival, um, saying that, uh, you know, he essentially wasn't happy, uh, scapegoating it with the uh, with the drug issues, of course, but we will also do a breakdown of those figures. Uh, we're getting our numbers in a little bit more carefully than some of the mainstream press who seem to have been uh, quite um, obediently reporting, um, reporting, sorry, uh, rewriting the media releases of the police media, which is a very disappointing way for media to be done. In fact, I, I don't think I saw one article... Uh, there might have been one actually. There were not very many articles which actually, uh, where the journalists actually bothered to go and speak to somebody who went to the festival or tried to reach out to uh, to the organisers in any kind of um, manner that would have been uh, would have allowed them some time to get back. Of course, a lot of the organisers have been on site cleaning up after uh, and, and packing down after eighteen thousand five hundred people were out in the bush for some time. If you can hear a little bit of uh, rage in my voice. I apologise, but it is there. Um, I presented a, a, a few panels. I, I helped MC a few panels um, there. I, I thought it was a, a pretty fantastic festival over, overall. We can certainly see that the culture has changed. I think a lot of things have changed over the past 10 years in all walks of life, and a lot of it has to do with um, the, the paradigm shift that's happening at the moment because of the way that we communicate, the changing way we've communicate, uh, we communicate because of the power of social media, essentially, because of the power of the internet, because of the power of our ability to connect, uh, because of the the growing influence of things like uh, artificial intelligence, uh, bots, these sorts of things on our life, on our politics, on our economics, all of it is changing. We are living through this period of change. We are shifting. Our children and our children's children are not going to see the world that exists now. I mean, this seems like obvious stuff to say. Obviously, 50 years ago, it was quite a different world as well. But I think we're seeing um, seeing a shift uh, on, on a pretty grand and global uh, proportion because we're, we're, we're re- reshuffling how the infrastructure of this world operates uh, by, by changing those communication channels that allow us to transport the goods and create the services that keep everything going and flowing, that move food from one place to another, that allow us to harness different kinds of energy uh, to power our computers, to power our lights, to power our machines. It's a changing world. And the uh, one of the panels uh, that I emceed uh, was Culture Wars and Australian Festivals. I will have that audio and video. There will be both audio and video soon. Uh, we're just waiting on the audio guys from Rainbow Serpent Festival to return back. Uh, and then we'll be putting that up and playing the panel in full. So this is um, uh, we, we've been doing uh, panels, uh, panel discussions at Rainbow Serpent Festival for a few years now. Uh, I have some audio that you're going to hear from last year's Rainbow Serpent Festival. So uh, this was um, called "Drugs in Australia: Going Around the Twist," and the reason why we named it that last year is because it felt like we'd been having this discussion, especially over things like decriminalisation, uh, over uh, basic sort of band-aid harm reduction solutions like um, pill testing uh, for, for quite a number of years and they'd been largely ignored or, um, or, or sort of pushed off to the side. And, and again, that's what's happened this year. Um, I've even seen... Uh, 
I can't remember which article it was, but um, um, somebody, it might have been Graham Ashton, actually, the police commissioner, uh, saying that he felt uh, that people were bringing up pill testing as a distraction every year as festivals came about. And I thought, Dis- distraction? A distraction from what? And and his, uh, his insinuation was that to talk about pill testing distracts from the core message, which is, <laughs> don't take drugs. Hey, kids, just say no. Just say no to drugs. They're bad for you. Look, see how they're illegal? Well, they're illegal because they're bad for you, obviously. Why else would they be illegal? This kind of logic needs to be squashed into the ground. It is nonsensical uh, in the utmost for anybody that has any kind of knowledge about drugs. It's not reflective of the, uh, of the comparative harms of these various different substances. I mean, I can go through, I'm, I'm not going to, I won't keep this rant going for too long, but um, there are over 200 substances listed as prohibited substances which are considered to have absolutely no uh, medical or, or legitimate sort of um, qualities to them. In Victoria, in Victoria alone, it's our Schedule 9 and Schedule 11 in Victoria, and uh, all of these substances are um, attract criminal penalties with them. There are some diversion programs for small personal amounts. Um, so the diversion programs allow uh, police to uh, to send somebody to essentially a re-education training uh, seminar where you learn. Uh, you know, to just say no, essentially. Uh, they, they, I think there are some good programs in there, but it's a real, it's, it's a bit of a muddled mix because in the end, um, as you can hear from, from the talking heads uh, that seem to get far too much attention in this debate, what they really want is abstinence from all psychoactive substances other than, of course, the ones that are controlled, the ones that donate uh, big money to the political parties. You know, one of the biggest donators to both the Labor and Liberal Party is the Australian Hoteliers Association. And guess what they make a lot of their money on? Grog and gambling. Two rather um, addictive... Uh, well, one of them being a psychoactive substance, one of them uh, having people that work out the psychology to essentially uh, take advantage of the psychoactive substances that already exist inside our brains. They can make us have dopamine kicks because these people have worked out how to do it. So, you know, uh, I guess it's okay if uh, if you've been legal for 100 years uh, and you've managed to work out how to heavily lobby uh, uh, certain certain governments. Um, you, you probably... Um, they're probably on your drug as well. I, I mean, how many of these politicians will happily go out and have a drink and call it a, a pro-social activity, but a bunch of people that uh, take a little bit of MDMA and have uh, an eight-hour-long conversation, really connect and rekindle friendships, that's antisocial, guys. Don't forget that. Uh, because it's illegal. It's illegal. Oh, dear. Where where is this debate at? This is uh, this is where where this is where I'm at at the moment. It's 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 such a um, it's such a loopy round the round sort of debate discussion. I do feel like it is slowly slowly getting somewhere. But um, as I said before, the panel that I presented at Rainbow Serpent Festival last weekend was entitled "Culture Wars and Australian Festivals," and it's because I've I've looked back um, at a few of the Australian festivals over the uh, over the decades, uh, and there is you know a lot of these sort of progressive alternative culture type festivals uh, have had different substances at their centre. In fact, some of them have outwardly been against alcohol because of the uh, anti-social effects that people have experienced with alcohol uh, from uh, domestic violence, from just stupid, obnoxious behaviour that pe- people have experienced. And, and, and look, I'm not trying to demonise alcohol here either. I don't think that we should prohibit that either. I think what we need to do is have a better, uh, more sound, more... Um, more balanced relationship between all of these things. We need to understand the bad and the good and we need to stop playing them off against each other in this, in this kind of silly battle of prohibition toward this, this ide- ideology of abstinence for all that's just, it's never been, it's never going to be. Why do we keep pursuing it at the expense of people's health and well-being? It's bizarre. <sighs> it's 3CR. 
Um, gosh, I should also say thank you to Freedom of Species, pardon that rant. Thank you to Freedom of Species, who will uh, be back next week from 1 o'clock uh, on 3CR. 3cr.org.au is the website to go and find out more about Freedom of Species. Subscribe to their podcast as well. Um, and you can also find the Encyclopedia program page there and you can uh, subscribe to our podcast and find out a little bit more. Uh, my name is Nick and this afternoon you are going to hear uh, the last year's Rainbow Serpent, oh, well, the second half of last year's Rainbow Serpent Festival panel entitled Drugs in Australia going around the twist. So please enjoy this now on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Okay, so I'm going to do um, a couple of things today. Um, talk about who I am and how I got involved in this movement and the things that I've been able to achieve with a bunch of help from a whole bunch of really dedicated people um, in the past couple of years. But also I want to share some of the stuff um, that is specifically related to what we've been looking at around the issue of pill testing and why it can't get up. But what I also want to look at, and it links to what I said at the start, acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, is some of the deeper complexities that I think touch on why our drugs discourse is the way it is. And they are things that I've been learning recently. Nick said I've, um, I've had the honor of being invited to a number of international conferences in the last year which have pretty much blown my mind and taught me some really, really interesting things about conversations that are happening overseas, particularly in other colonised countries, that we're not having here yet. And I want to just throw some of those ideas to you shortly. Um, Just quickly, I'll start by saying that I actually found this space and found this um, movement and found this, I guess, hopefully budding career that, uh, that has changed my life right in the very space where we're sitting. Um, Two years ago, I I came to this panel um, wanting to know more, wanting to write my Master of Teaching thesis on the drug education curriculum, but having no idea anything about the evidence base, just having that gut feeling, having those, you know, gapped dance floor revelations that there's something better going on here than there is outside in the real world. And there's, what are we going to do about that? And how can I learn more? Um, That panel and listening to the distinguished guests um, and others that we have Uh, on the panel and the research and the work that they do really opened up my eyes to the stack of evidence that we have in favour of drug law reform. Um, It's been said before, I believe, by Alex Wodak, another um, great harm reduction advocate in Australia, um, we've won the intellectual debate already. All evidence or the vast majority of evidence and research and experts are completely on our side. Okay, so I want to look a little bit deeper into why things are not, why that's not being listened to and why drug policy is probably one of the biggest uh, examples apart from perhaps climate change where the expert uh, advice and the research is so far from the actual policy reality. It's really deep, it's really complex. Um, I'll touch briefly on the first thing that got me involved in this space and that was uh, some work that I did um, after setting up the first chapter of SSDP Australia. We actually met, uh, I actually met the people just setting up the organisation at the end of that uh, panel two years ago here and um, I, we set up the chapter at Melbourne Uni and within about six months through some awesome connections that we have with people in the student union we actually ended up getting um, approval from the student council uh, as a preliminary program to hand out reagent kits to students free of charge uh, as part of a union harm reduction program. Um, this was one of the first times this had happened uh, in the world. We got the inspiration from some stuff happening in the UK up in Newcastle as well um, And that's been a really, really interesting situation. I'm going to touch on it a tiny bit just to update you on um, what's happened in the past year since I spoke about it here last year. Um, But I'm not going to go into too much detail. It's not particularly interesting. It's very bureaucratic and it's kind of the thing. The other things I want to say, I think, are a little bit more profound and potentially useful to understanding why things are the way they are. Basically, there was a lot of media coverage when that um, announcement came out that the student union was going to be providing pill testing services to students because the government won't look at the evidence and do it for its own citizens. That was kind of the vibe that was going on at the time. And um, that really gave me the opportunity to connect and learn a lot about what's happening in the international youth space and other uh, activism that's going on around the, uh, the world. And um, what actually happened, just briefly, is the university came in Um, and said, and mind you, at the time where complete volunteers, policy, 
uh, and advocacy kind of noobs. We didn't really know what we were doing, but we just had this passion and this drive and this opportunity to get something potentially innovative up. But the university came in and said, um, you can't have reagent kits on campus. Um, it exists in a, a really interesting, complex legal gray area where reagent kits themselves aren't illegal, but the process of using them to test drugs is. Um, and so that creates a whole bunch of difficulties and li potential liability issues for a big organization like a student union, particularly um, the Melbourne University one. Um, that has instigated a really long, <laughs> almost two years now, um, consultation process. How do we get around that? Um, and we've got a plan. Um, it's been ongoing. And I suppose the reasons for the slow pace is potentially because student unions aren't traditionally built to provide harm reduction services. This is the job of the government. It actually says so in our national drug policy. We just don't follow it particularly well. Um, so they exist for student politics. Um, they're quite slow. They're quite bureaucratic. They change administrations every single year. So I've dealt with three presidents, three UMSU presidents, three welfare officers, and three student councils in trying to get this up. It takes time. Um, but I'm really, really proud and really, 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 really excited to say that um, the UMSU, the new welfare UMSU officer is actually in the audience. He is one of us. And um, I'm particularly inspired and particularly hopeful that there'll be some huge shifts and changes on campus uh, at Melbourne Uni. And then as soon as that happens on other campuses, hopefully this year. And that is our priority. Um, I'm going to shift uh, now to trying to talk about some of the deeper stuff here. The two words I'm going to introduce in a sec, multidisciplinary and intersectional. Okay, this issue of drug policy and the way our society talks about drugs is actually super complex. Now, the reasons that I've been able to study this and learn this is through SSDP, through the movement that I became a part of um, after coming here. Um, like I said, that attention that sort of happened after the Melbourne Uni program, um, I was given the opportunity to uh, represent that program at a number of international conferences, uh, a lot in, uh, in North America and also an international youth convening in Thailand where I really learned a lot about the other activism that goes on around the world and it is pumping, okay? Like there is such a scene happening around the world of young people, festival culture, alternative lifestyle, all of it, or not even, just people who look at evidence and consider it and agree with it to change all this. Um, I found it really inspiring. Um, one of those in particular um, that I want to talk about, which was potentially the most profound, was the International Drug Policy Reform Conference in Atlanta. Um, this was in October, last October. And um, it's called an international conference, but it's quite US-centric, um, which is fine because that is the, where the, the origins and the depth of injustice um, of the war on drugs come, you know, it comes from and where it's most uh, profound, potentially. We'll see. Um, I'll get to that. But... Um, I really had my perspective shifted there when I learnt and really had it put in front of me the evidence and the personal stories of how the war on drugs actually affects minorities and particularly people of colour. Um, that is the focus of this conference, that is the focus of the drug law reform discourse in the United States and it's actually, I believe, and I'm going to show you a slide in a sec and there's a lot of evidence to support this, that it is actually at the root of the war on drugs and is actually at the root of so many of our social problems. And I want to explore this with you so that we can start to understand some of the intersections that happen in our drugs discourse and actually some of the intersections that I have seen here at Rainbow Serpent around us all the time. Okay, I'm... Um, get to it. <laughs> trying to... Um, okay, so potentially the most uh, profound panel that I saw here was called Race, Colonialism and Psychedelics. And this is where the conversation is in the US. It was a panel full of people of color sharing the complex experiences of their ancestors, indigenous communities who had their culture systematically ripped from them and the, uh, the safe practices that have been built up over thousands of years in their communities uh, and how to have relationships with drugs uh, system systematically taken away from them um, over the last uh, two, three, four hundred years. Um, and that this is a relatively new phenomenon. Also talking about how the war on drugs massively disproportionately affects minorities. Um, if you're a, a black US American, you are six times more likely to be arrested for smoking a joint than you are if you are white. 
they are incarcerated at a massive, massively higher rate, and there is a, a thing called the prison industrial complex, which there is a lot of evidence to show that it has been systematically set up as what's called the New Jim Crow Laws. So the woman who gave the plenary speech at this conference published this book called The New Jim Crow Laws, which talks about how the drug laws are sort of this modern contemporary manifestation of um, slavery. We had slavery, we had the Jim Crow laws in the beginning of the 19th century that, about segregation and how to sort of still control these minorities that were now having to be free. And with the end, with the civil rights movement and the end of segregation, they needed a new way to systematically control these minorities that might subvert the dominant system. Um, and it's a really interesting read if you, uh, you want to know some more. Um, I'll just briefly touch on the work of MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Many of you might be aware of the research that's emerging around looking at the, the, the benefits, not only the harms, but the benefits of these substances in treating a range of mental health disorders for a start. So there's some really interesting research coming out about how post-traumatic stress disorder can be treated through a couple of sessions with 80 milligrams of MDMA in a psychotherapist. Um, cured after 18 months, I believe the research says. These are forms of PTSD that, uh, in Iraqi war veterans that were unresponsive to any other form of treatment or pharmaceutical um, treatment. Um, that's just some of the research. I hung out a lot with um, some of the youth workers or the young people that work at MAPS, and they're incredibly inspiring people. And they believe that the work they're doing in addressing traumas and addressing mental health problems in the United States and around the world is in response to age-old injustices that continue reproducing themselves in their society and in ours. Um, they believe that the United States is a traumatized country. Donald Trump is president of the United States. The discourse they have there, the way they talk about their identity, the way they talk about things, can be kind of messed up sometimes. But if you're a progressive US American, you're looking at the root causes of these things and you are steadily moving to this psychedelic renaissance, they call it, in how to fix and how to address these intergenerational traumas that exist in communities of color and exist all over the United States and also exist in the white communities of people who vote for Donald Trump. Okay, that's the way they talk about things and the way they're looking and approaching the evidence base and I find that really, really interesting. Um, okay, um, I'm gonna, but to sort of justify this and to bring some evidence into it, there's this quote, um, it's available in a really interesting CNN article. I'm gonna read it to you. Um, and we're just going to sit with it for a second and then we're going to move on to, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about how this might manifest in Australia to hopefully start some sort of conversation. Um, okay, so this is from the domestic policy chief advisor to President Nixon who really ramped up and officially sort of started the war on drugs in 1971. Um, the Nixon campaign in 1968 um, and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it either illegal to be against the war on drugs or to be black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. I'm sure many of you know the, the way we talk about things in Australia and the way, the way you probably even entered this festival. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of criminalization. We had police welcoming us at the gates with dogs. Okay, so there's a, there is evidence to suggest that there is a systematic attempt to disrupt communities that might be anti-war left, that might be open to racial minorities, that might be open to everything, like something like Rainbow is. It's just food for thought. Um, what I really think is a, an interesting way to consider this that I've sort of been struggling to think of over the last few months with this big urge and this sort of um, obligation I felt coming back from that conference in Atlanta thinking, well, we don't talk about things like that in Australia. We don't talk about drugs in terms of how it might affect our already most disadvantaged. We don't talk about indigenous communities and the, the, the complex issues that exist in those communities in the context of colonialism, in the context of racial injustice. We don't consider the fact, and we're gonna sit with this one for a couple of seconds, that there is evidence that says that indigenous Australians are the most incarcerated population on earth. on earth, in our country, and we don't talk about it. And I really think we need to start considering why things are the way they are, and the fact that there is 
a discourse and a, a conversation that goes on in Australia where the mainstream media, the mainstream politicians and the mainstream like social fabric considers something like Invasion Day and protests against it as something subversive and as something that's a problem to our mainstream, uh, I suppose ultimately, white social fabric. They also have a huge problem with Rainbow Serpent. They don't like, they don't seem to appreciate what really goes on here. The media coverage doesn't seem to actually show the connections on the dance floor and the workshops and the learning and the, the growth that occurs in these kind of events. It's distorted and I'm really interested why. And I'm really interested in looking at these intersections between indigenous injustice, broader racial injustice in Australia and broader... I'm going to sort of use the same language as the US Americans, broader kind of sicknesses at the bottom of our identity as a nation, which are manifesting in all these harms with these complex psychoactive substances that we need to live with, that we always have as humans, and that we are experiencing specific and particular harms with ever since the war on drugs was waged. Um, I'm just going to finish with two really interesting examples of this, which I found really, really hopeful. I went up uh, to the hill last night to, to get this exact quote and went on Facebook and um, just to repeat Dr. Caldecott's words, um, there was a huge overdose uh, at a club in Melbourne. I think it was nine people have been hospitalised. I don't know any other details. Um, there was also <laughs> a Guardian article about how there was 50,000 people in the Melbourne CBD who went and protested Invasion Day. It was bigger than the Australian Day cel <laughs> celebrations. <laughs> This is huge. There's like photos of this, like Swanson Street full. Okay, so there are things changing and there are two articles, instead of like last year and the year before, where we go back to articles vilifying what goes on here and vilifying our way of life and our ideas about a hope for the future. Instead, we're gonna go back to a discourse that instead saw harms happen, not here where we do our thing, but there where they do theirs. And then we're also going to see this broader shift in the way we think about ourselves as a nation. And I think that there's really interesting things to consider there together. I hope I've kind of started to explain it. Um, but I think there's, like Dr. Caldecott said, there's a shift in the public attitude that is starting to look at things in a more complex and a more evidence-based way. And I've looked at this evidence and I've had the privilege of talking to experts all around the world on this. And this is where the conversation is internationally. And I really hope um, that we can start bringing that conversation here. That's um, what we're doing as an organization with Students for Sensible Drug Policy throughout the year with a bunch of communities. And um, <laughs> it's really changed my life and it's given me a chance to give something back to a community that I love so much. We've got a table up the back there and if you're inspired and want to give something to this as well and to make it happen, um, I'd really love you to get involved. We're winning and we're going to keep fighting. Thank you. Nick Kent, President of Students for Sensible Drug Policy at Melbourne University. And our final speaker before we have some Q&A time is Martin Williams. Martin yeah, is the... Uh, yeah, stay around there. Um, uh, Martin Williams is the uh, President of PRISM, which is Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, Australia's answer to MAPS, uh, although it's been a little bit more difficult to get research <laughs> happening in Australia. Martin, <laughs> round uh, of applause, please. Thanks very much. Can you hear me? Yep. yep. I'll, um, I'll keep this very brief, uh, just so we can move into Q&A, and then hopefully we can expand on, on anything that I might have left unsaid by the time we, uh, we finish up around uh, three in about half an hour. Um, first, of course, I'd like to add my uh, respect and acknowledgement, as, uh, as the other speakers have. It's wonderful to be here, and I, I thank, uh, thank the traditional custodians of this land um, and pay my respects. And, of course, I thank you all for coming. There are many familiar faces in the audience, so it's fantastic to see you back, and I appreciate your support. Uh, we appreciate your support, and, of course, it's great to see many new faces, and I hope we can uh, look forward to your support and your interest as, uh, as time goes on. Uh, I'm uh, after all of the uh, after all of the sad stories we've heard up until now. I'm hoping I can offer a little bit of a, a glimmer of hope now, um, and that's really a matter of uh, starting to uh, benefit from maybe the rewards of patience. Um, in a in a parallel dimension, I actually 
um, spend time making wine and uh, and one of the great joys of involved uh, being involved in winemaking is just seeing things come to fruition and really come to their peak over a long period of time and uh, that period of time can be anywhere between a couple of years and uh, MAPS in the US has been going for 30 plus years now so they've had a long struggle you know behind them and I suspect we're hopefully going to be able to um, take advantage of the the great work that they've done and so hopefully our uh, our journey towards achieving uh, psychedelic medical research in Australia as uh, hopefully a, a means of adding to the legitimization of, of, of drugs in Australia um, will be a shorter process. Don't know about whether it's going to be less painful, but hey, I'm up for a bit of pain. It's kind of, can't go too far astray. Um, I have the great good fortune uh, and honour to work uh, on a personal level and also through our organisation PRISM with DanceWise and it's, um, it's a little bit of a shame we didn't have time perhaps to have uh, Stephanie of uh, DanceWise up speaking with us but uh, she's probably somebody who's known to you um, and uh, as I say just being involved um, for me gives me an extra an extra sort of uh, feeling of belonging and and being able to contribute back to this wonderful community uh, which we're involved um, just one little anecdote I think through my dancewise experience I think that a little do uh, little knowledge can be very dangerous uh, a couple of years back we had somebody present um, with quite a lot of delusional sort of experience they're obviously in the middle of quite a quite a journey and uh, either they this person or their friends sort of said oh um, uh, apparently they've they've taken DOX and uh, and so that they were in the medics tent for a while the medics came to us and said this uh, oh yes no they, they've uh, they've They've, uh, they say they've taken DOX. We don't know what that is, but we've, we've done a little bit of a Google search and we think it could be DXM. And so we're going to treat this person for DXM overdose, dextromethorphan, which is a dissociative um, active in some brands of cough syrup. And I very quickly said, no, I'm not sure that that would be entirely appropriate in the circumstances. Let's, uh, let's take a different uh, line. And so I think uh, the kind of professional knowledge that I and other people in our community can bring um, to really looking out for taking care of and, and using this knowledge and evidence-based approach to, to, um, to this sort of caregiving is, is absolutely critical. So in fact, I would urge you just as a little bit of a shout out to DanceWise um, to be prepared to share your knowledge and to, uh, to offer and contribute some of your time um, to this very important uh, service that's provided. Uh, I'll just move very quickly. Who of you has heard of PRISM and know any of the backstory at all? Come on, guys, please. <laughs> okay, well, I'll keep it very brief. Um, we, uh, I'm also involved in Entheogenesis Australis, which is this uh, conference that's been running off and on for uh, well over um, 10, almost 15 years now. Uh, and so out of EGA, we had our last conference back in the second week of December, second weekend of December, fantastic um, turnout and great response, wonderful meeting of minds. Um, PRISM, Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, came out of that as a, uh, hopefully an effort to contribute, to make an Australian contribution to the global psychedelic medical research movement that was pioneered by MAPS uh, and Hefter, Hefter Institute in the US. Um, and so it's a long, slow, uh, row to hoe. There are lots of uh, lots of hurdles, but we're taking them on one by one. Um, I'll just sort of fast forward because it's been a six to seven year process since we um, since we started out Prism. Uh, we've had a couple of cracks at getting a, a, tr a clinical trial underway initially for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. Um, that is still work in progress. Uh, and it, it seems right now through, almost directly through, uh, through the EGA conference that we've got some real progress towards potentially a psilocybin uh, for anxiety and depression associated with um, terminal illness. So that's a big step forward for us. And also it seems that we might have philanthropic funding in the pipeline. So it's just a matter of taking a very slow, uh, long, slow uh, you know, sort of planning process um, we're here for the long haul. Uh, I really feel that we're, um, we're just on the cusp of making some real progress. So I'd love over the next couple of years to, to be able to say just how much progress uh, we are making. So thank you very much. Um, 
finally, just a, a, a very quick one. In, the, in our very early um, communications with One Ethics, uh, one non the only non-institutional ethics committee in Australia, basically, we were, uh, we were knocked back on a couple of reasonable counts, I suspect, and a couple of others which we thought were very unreasonable. Um, but nonetheless, the ethics side of things is extremely important. It's certainly been touched upon by David and by Fiona and by Nick. Very, very important part of it. But... Uh, just one little example that I would like to bring up just to, as a little seed of thought for you. A number of years ago, uh, the Danish government approved a, a clinical trial for the prescription of uh, diamorphine or heroin for maintenance therapy for registered addicts. Um, and the, the early stages were, well, let's do a randomised control clinical trial to, to judge the efficacy and safety of this approach, which is a standard approach for randomised control trials. Um, at some point, somebody said, hang on, um, the evidence is already in. It's been demonstrated amply in Switzerland and other jurisdictions. We believe it would be unethical for a, a, a non-active placebo to be used in this trial because it would be unethical to, um, to withhold an already proven treatment. And so we feel that the evidence is mounting for, for a number of the treatments that we're advocating. Uh, and so I, I'm hoping that as time goes on, then the, the saner uh, voices and minds will prevail and that we'll be able to move beyond the kind of doctrinaire and politi politicised sort of resistance that we're seeing so far. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you very, very much for sitting us with us in all this heat. Uh, and thanks for your support and look forward to your questions. All the best. Thank you, Martin Williams, and we will have some questions shortly, but if you want to know now uh, how you can get involved, this year is the year to get involved. Uh, in March, the government will be releasing a report uh, into an inquiry they did into drug law reform. It was quite broad. A uh, number of organisations made submissions to them, and some of those you can find printed out if you're really interested in reading this kind of stuff. There's only a few copies of them, but if it's something that really interests you, we do have a few copies up the back. Uh, there's also now the ability to sign e-petitions uh, through Victorian Parliament, uh, and it will... Uh, before that, like, you know, those petition things that people run... Um, from, I don't even, I can't remember the name of the websites, but they're not admissible to Parliament, so there's not much you can do with it other than raise a bit of PR or whatever. Uh, the e-petitions e e that are on the Parliament website at the moment uh, are uh, admissible to Parliament, uh, and there's... Uh, there's actually a, a couple of double-ups at the moment, which is an administrative problem, but um, there is one to uh, calling for the cessation of sniffer dogs or the, the PAD dog program, uh, Passive Alert Detection Dog, uh, and also uh, for uh, pill testing to at least be given uh, a, a trial period in Victoria. Um, now, we're just about to do some questions. Please do raise your hands and a microphone will come to you from Ash Blackwell, who check, is out check. up the back. And he's also just going to quickly tell us a little bit about uh, um, about High Alert, the campaign last year, because uh, uh, Nevena has is not here. Uh, good afternoon. Can everyone hear me? Is this mic working all right? Can we get a bit more volume? How's that? How's that? Can you guys hear me down the back there? Raise your hands right down the back. Yep, good. Okay. Um, hi, my name's Ash Blackwell. I'm the founding vice president of Students for Sensible Drug Policy Australia. Um, hang on, I was going to time myself so I don't take more than two minutes. Um, we founded the organisation so that people like Nick would have an opportunity to do exactly what he's doing today, to represent a youth and student voice in drug policy. We were able to, in addition to our submission to that parliamentary inquiry, we took seven students to the parliamentary committee to give testimony uh, to the committee members and they were particularly interested in things uh, things that we can tweak around drug policy without necessarily shifting the big levers while they were interested in that also so youth mental health services how they might interact uh, with drug use problematic drug use things like that um, we have chapters at, um, I think it's seven different universities now in three states. Uh, so we're kind of branching out and creating this national network of students. So that's a little bit about us. Just to answer a few questions that have been coming up at the back here. Uh, places where you can hear uh, all of the members on the panel have been interviewed previously on In Psychedelia Radio. It's a weekly radio show that uh, Nick produces and I co-host with him. 
Uh, each Sunday afternoon we broadcast live on 855am from Melbourne and stream live from 3cr.org.au. So you can listen to things like this there. Uh, EGA that Martin was talking about also have a YouTube channel where you can hear talks from people like David Caldicott uh, and Fiona at previous conferences. And um, all right, I've got to quickly move along. Uh, so the High Alert campaign was started last, last year in about April or May uh, when the Victoria Police announced that they were going to be bringing sniffer dogs onto the streets of Melbourne to address ostensibly things like the mass overdose that happened there in January where three people died, um, many were transported to hospital in a critical state. And um, their answer to that was to run an operation where essentially they hid a large squad of cops around a corner and then pounced around the corner, surrounded them in a line to a nightclub and then they would bring a sniffer dog down the line which would detect the smell of drugs or pretend to detect the smell of drugs uh, on people and then the detectives would search them. Now this was hugely problematic for a number of reasons. Sniffer dogs are bullshit is the first one of them. Um, but it was also a very intimidating uh, uh, way of doing things. And um, as community members of this community and a representative of policy organisation, we were, yep, we were uh, kind of freaking out about uh, this becoming an established practice. So within three weeks, Nevena, who unfortunately couldn't make it to the panel, um, started this organisation, High Alert, and I teamed up with her and we basically put a very strong counter-narrative to the one that the police were running. And in addition to that, took uh, myself and some of the people in the activist corner here out onto the streets for about seven weeks in a row. We went out to scrutinise the operation, to film it, to show a presence uh, opposing that operation so that it wasn't happening in the darkness because I think they tend to get away with these horrible things when, um, when we don't highlight them. So within three weeks, the sniffer dogs were off the street. Uh, they didn't come back. Um, yeah. And, um, and until about seven weeks later when the police essentially rolled out a propaganda campaign and since then they've kind of shifted their messaging on drug policy stuff to kind of co-opt the language of our movement of harm reduction and things like that. Um, but the bottom line with that is activism works. Uh, while it may look like there's these organisations with a lot of structures and stuff, the real reality behind the scenes is it's the networks of community members like myself and Nick and the other people here that really run these kinds of operations. So uh, get involved, come down at the end and um, sign up. We'll tell you how you can get involved and questions, raise your hands and I'll bring the mic to you. Yep, your raised hands are microphone beacons. Um, this question's sort of directed at for Fiona, does pill testing change the behaviour of drug dealers? Oh, I, I don't really need to see you anyway, Joe, but thank you. <laughs> Did you hear my question? Um, does pill chain testing does change the behaviour of drug dealers? Yeah, like um, are drug dealers themselves interested in testing their pills or yeah, is um, there any anecdotal I think, or Yeah, there's quite a few things that we've noticed happening. First of all, um, and as one of David's slideshows, if people weren't happy with the drugs that had been missold, missold the drugs, uh, quite often they said they were going to take them back to the dealer and either ask for a refund or just let the dealer know that that was what was in the drugs. Because I think you know, the, the dealers themselves don't necessarily know, particularly at the end of the chain. They, they might have been missold them from people higher up as well. So I think there's an interesting feedback loop that goes on that the, the user might end up knowing more about the drugs than the dealer did. Uh, and um, so, th so there's that issue about that sort of feedback loop. But secondly, to get it off the ground, we had to say that we wouldn't be testing it for dealers. But then who's a dealer and what does a dealer look like? So basically, so long as people just come and bring one pill and don't dump a whole bag on the table, uh, then we're going to be testing them for them. And as long as they behave in an appropriate and you know polite and reasonable way in, inside the, our tent. Um, but I think the longer term thing is that's one of the things that we can be looking at. And there is some evidence from across Europe that uh, the tracking of different pills has led to a response from manufacturers. Uh, and there's a bit, a bit of a debate about whether PMMA is meant to be in pills or if it's just naive and inexperienced uh, manufacturers who have ended up putting that in the pill uh, as a bit of a byproduct, as a sort of like chemical disaster. Uh, but I think that that's one of the things that can happen, really, is the more you chart it, there should be, should be um, 
more responsible manufacturing and I think that's one of the things that we could hope for and look for and I'm always saying I'd quite like to go to Amsterdam and have a word with the manufacturers about these really strong pills 300 and 350 milligrams of MDMA because the concern with those is that they're so small the size of my fingernail and they're so hard that it's really really difficult for somebody to discreetly break them into halves when you're looking around worried about security stuff over your shoulder and I know how hard they are to break because when we test them we've bought special metal hammers to break them so there's no way people can do that in a, I was going to say in a muddy field, but you don't have muddy fields. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's one of the things that we can look at in the future. I think there's all sorts of interesting things that can come out of the pill check and that, you know, we're just on the, at, the, at the cusp of the beginning of this, really. Thank you. I might, might add that the Dutch of, are the great granddaddies of this, and they've been, through their DIMS um, system, have been doing static or um, um, sort of storefront-based uh, pill testing. And they've sh shown significant changes in the quality of the market as a consequence of there being an, a capacity to test. So the evidence, all the evidence would suggest that it does, in fact, not only change people's behavior, but also makes the market a safer place as well. Hands up for questions. Pop over here. Hi. Um, I miss your name. Second in the, in the line. Nick. <laughs> Nick. Nick. Sorry. Nice to meet you. Um, I was really interested when you were talking about um, using psilocybin to treat anxiety and MDMA to treat PTSD, etc. Um, I was wondering about. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, Is yeah, that bit sure. better? Yeah. <laughs> um, what's your perspective on how drugs like that affect those types of illnesses? Because there is a belief that I get faced with the. Uh, I get told a lot that drugs like that can actually enhance your problems rather than right. solving them, and I was just wondering what you. I'll, I'll shoot to Martin in a sec because he's probably more qualified to answer that on a like a neurological level. Um, I think it's really complex, you know. I, I, is that right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, yeah. I, 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 like the power and the like profoundity of these substances, which I'm sure many slash all of us here can relate to, is really really complex. And how our brains and how our like experiences or like the triangle we say of um, a drug experience is the intersection between your set, like your mindset and who you are physically and in, in your head, um, your setting, so your environments and the drug itself or the drugs that may be in a drug. Um, and, um, and so it's this constant flux and flow between those varying factors. So if you're in a safe clinical setting um, with the, you know, the th studies that have gone through an evidence base uh, with trained psychotherapists, um, you know, a movement run by people who were like hippies in the 70s who went and got PhDs during the backlash in the 80s who spent 30 years building this movement because what they saw on the dance floor in the 60s, you know, meant something to them. Um, yeah, I'm not, not to discount for a, for a second that there can be harms as well, but it's very complex and the way to navigate that is through research. So I'd like to throw to Martin. Oh, yeah. Just quickly before Martin yeah. um, jumps in, because he'll uh, have a lot to say about it, but um, there's a reason why it was not just to soar angelic, it's to fathom hell or soar angelic. And these are not panaceas for problems. Psychedelics do not, you know, just take one. We would get a lot of questions through the Australian Psychedelic Society, people who want to solve their own depression through their own personal use of psychedelics. Um, and if they're not well, uh, they're not getting along well with their mind, if there's other issues going on, if they can't get the substance that they think that it is, if they end up with something else, things can definitely go wrong. To fathom hell as well, remember. Um, yeah, sure, thanks. Um, so certainly it's, it's very important to differentiate the recreational use of drugs from the therapeutic use of drugs. Um, so there's always that caveat that I think has to be put forward first. Um, it's very important that the therapeutic sort of the environment and the context have to be positive and conducive and so usually that involves fairly quiet. Uh, music and and sort of more sort of gentle uh, sort of gentle and subtle sort of uh, triggers um, 
it's important to say that it's actually the psychotherapy that's doing the, the work and that the drugs are an adjunct to the psychotherapy. And it's also very important to stress that um, in general, there will be one, two, or maybe exceptionally three sessions of drug-assisted psychotherapy. So these are, these are really, um, they're short, sharp interventions of generally talk therapy, supported therapy, um, utilizing the drugs usually to open up what we might call a sort of a, a, a window of tolerance, a therapeutic window. Um, and so there, it's a therapeutic window, uh, window of tolerance is the better way to put mm. it probably, um, that is, um, it's critical because in many cases, for example, in the case of the MDMA um, assisted therapy for PTSD, um, for people who are familiar with the, the PTSD symptoms at all, there are two major, major symptoms which can um, have a huge impact on the efficacy of, of psychotherapy. One is um, avoidance and the other is hyperanxiety or hypervigilance, hyperanxiety. And so the avoidance one is, uh, and there's actually a third one I'll come to in a moment. Um, but basically what MDMA does is it, it really opens up the, the person who takes it, as many of you may be aware, um, to... Um, uh, to become more accepting of their trauma and to be able to face their trauma without that escalation of anxiety which can close them down and can be a major problem um, in uh, standard exposure therapies. The other one, of course, is that um, MDMA opens up that sort of uh, that connection between the participant or the subject, the, the patient, whatever, and the therapists, um, which is really very important for that support process of the therapist to be able to assist the patient to to self heal effectively, to to be exposed to the um, to be exposed to the trauma, to process it, to work through it, uh, which is really fundamentally the process that's taking place. Um, so those two things are very important for um, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. For psilocybin-assisted uh, psychotherapy for anxiety and depression associated with late-stage um, terminal illness, but interestingly enough for addiction therapy as well, and psilocybin therapy is becoming, um, is being studied at the moment, it's proving to be very effective for, for example, alcohol addiction, for uh, nicotine addiction and for other substance use disorders. Um, then it's, that's more of a, a, a standard sort of psychedelic experience which sort of breaks the head a little bit and sort of uh, encourages the person to take a different perspective on their, on their particular issue. And it, and it also or put their issue in the perspective of a broader their life and the lives of those around them. So those, those are really quite important sort of um, things to, to keep in mind. So as I say, it's not one, one great thing about these, um, these approaches are they don't involve the giving of a pill for the rest, you know, for every day for the rest of a person's life, which will have its own attendant issues. This is really sort of a short-term, very effective therapy, always with follow-up of integration sessions, which are absolutely critical for the, for the processing and the integration of the experience back into the, the, the life. So, sorry, that's a bit of a long answer, but I hope it's uh, useful to you. Thanks so much. I'd, I'd also just add one thing really quickly. Um, I just want to quote um, Dr. Monica Barrett, who's usually on this panel, but uh, is unable to be here. I believe she's pregnant. Um, and so um, I just remember her saying one time, and I, I can't sit here in my position and condone drug use, but at the same time, I think it's, it's whilst all the, um, the research and the, these clinical settings and trials are obviously the most legitimate way to prove this sort of thing, I don't think we can say that there's no form of therapy or self-therapy that happens on a dance floor, for example. And so um, I believe, you know, there's something interesting to consider there. It's just that on a dance floor, that triangle of set, set and substance is more, um, you know, complicated and more uh, vulnerable, I suppose, to varying degrees of circumstances. So we have to prove it in a controlled setting before looking at these much more complex, much more varied, much more... Um, I don't know, probably political things as well, like around why we're all here and why we're all doing what we're doing, yeah. So we could tag team for quite a while here, but uh, I think in this sort of more um, group, large group, therapeutic sort of context that I think really does, you know, effectively apply here is that it's, it's really, really crucial that we look out for each other and that we do provide a supportive, caring environment for anybody who is going through a process because the reality is that these processes are taking place here at, at this event. 
and at other events. Mm. Um, we see them taking place and it's, it's all too easy to just sort of walk past somebody who's, who's doing it tough, but um, I would urge you all to always to, to treat others as you would be treated yourself. If you, if, if you were having a bad time, then you would hope that somebody would come and either just like have a chat, make sure you're okay, whatever. So I think that's absolutely mm. crucial. Yep. It's about time for one or two more questions. Raised hands, conjure microphones. There you go. It's the force. Hi, David. This is a question for you. Yeah. Um, I'm an emergency physician myself. Good um, on you. You're well dressed for it, man. Now you're far partial than me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, really think your work's very important. Thank um, you. Especially part of, of our uh, profession. My question relates to thoughts and behaviours within our profession. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what I've found through working through a few different departments is that it's very interdepartmental. Some really believe in harm reduction mm. and I think their approach to people who come in is commendable and in others they don't. So what I'm wondering is what are your thoughts about trying to integrate some education for our college members and also formal college policy on harm reduction and an approach for that. Oh, I think that's a great idea. Um, there are some... Um, the, the, the problem in medicine, um, and I guess the very fact that you and I are here probably means that we shouldn't be in that profession anyway. We're a fairly conservative no, we're fucking conservative, incredibly conservative profession, um, and very judgmental. We spend all of our lives um, trying to qualify to get into medicine. When we get into medicine, um, we uh, study very hard, and by the time we come out the other end, we're still morally and spiritually only about 14 years old. Uh, we've not seen anything of life. Um, and that goes two ways, I think. I think people... Um, can really embrace the vocation of medicine, accept uh, that it's more than a profession, uh, and try really hard to do the best thing by their patient all the time. That was, that's, what, that's the behavior that gives us the right to sign passports and be given a small amount of respect. There's a very large group in medicine which um, sees it as a way of making money, sees it as a way of political success, Unfortunately, a lot of the political medical people in this country um, will swing with the, the whatever the political paradigm is at the moment. So you can see this vacillation at the moment in all of the issues of medicinal cannabis at the moment. Medicinal cannabis is a no-brainer. This is just done. And yet the medical profession is tying itself in knots in Australia on this space. Fortunately, the emergency medical subspeciality is a young one. And so I think there's huge opportunity um, to represent, as a young speciality, um, the interests of people. The way I do it is, I, uh, and it's actually become a lot easier for me as a parent. Are you, are you a parent? No. It's, it's all ahead of you. Um, the, uh, and and the, the way you just, you, you just fly it is you say, if what you're doing is not good enough for someone in your family, could you please stop fucking doing it? Um, and uh, you know that's either referring to people by ethnic slurs, by and a lot of the words we use to describe, as you know, drug users in the emergency department, are words that are probably every bit as insulting. Um, and that's kind of like bullying. We need to take a real stance about that. So you lead by example. You stamp it out. The best way to change culture in medicine, like, is like the Jesuits. You take the students. You, give, you take the men and women at the age of seven and you give back the men at the age of 17. Um, so take on the JMOs, take on the medical students, ensure that they are wise to what is going on, and eventually this old mob will die. So, you know, you'll change it yourself. On a college level, though, has there been any approach for pill testing The so problem on. in this space is that there is ownership or perceived ownership by toxicology. And so the toxicology people live in huge silos on the east and the west coasts of your fine big country. And to get any of them to agree on anything at all is it's kind of like, you know, 
to get uh, bipartisan support in the rugby league competition between Queensland and New South Wales. It's not possible to get um, consensus opinion between the two. So I think there is room. I mean, say, for example, in Victoria, um, people like Sean Green and the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, people who are working in this space and are affiliated with ASIM, that's the way to go. You might not be able to lead from a, a college-based... There are a lot of egos there. Um, and this is a space for ego death. You've just heard the uh, 2018 Rainbow Serpent Festival panel. So that was last year's Rainbow Serpent Festival panel entitled Drugs in Australia Going Around the Twist. We will have this year's Rainbow Serpent Festival panel for you shortly, probably next weekend, including a video that we'll put up on YouTube so you can watch the panel or listen to the panel. Uh, our latest panel uh, was Culture Wars and Australian Festivals. Uh, highly appropriate for what we've seen going on uh, thrown at Rainbow Serpent Festival and other festivals around this um, this culture, uh, subculture uh, over the past week or so but, you know, months. Uh, this has been in Psychedelia. Find us 3cr.org.au and find the program page. Queer Near is up next so please stay tuned and enjoy your afternoon. See you later. This is in Psychedelia. Comments, complaints or contributions are welcome. Jump on the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au and head to the Encyclopedia program page. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter or send us an email. Encyclopedia does not condone or condemn people who use drugs for their choices. This has been a 3CR podcast. You can hear Encyclopedia live every Sunday from 2pm. Head to 3cr.org.au for more.